of those two scriptures. So we're talking about the character and the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God also. God's character is always the same and he never changes. Hebrews 13, 8 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then let's turn to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3 is the last book of the Old Testament. So right before Matthew. Chapter 3, in verse 6, God speaking, he says, For I am the Lord, I do not change, therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. So we depend on God not changing in order to survive. So God is not going to change, he never has, he never will. Hebrews 13, 8, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So past, present, and future, he is the same. That bullet point underneath there is that God is good. Psalms 100 verse 5 is one of the more famous passages that talks about his goodness. It's all over the Bible, but God is good. And then Psalms 18:30 says, all of his ways are perfect. So that's simple, straightforward. Second point, when it comes to God being good or God's goodness, this does not mean that God always does what makes us feel good. This is where the misunderstanding is. A lot of people think that God being good means he's going to do what will make me feel good. But that is not true. Amen? Amen. What it does mean is that he always does what is good for us, ultimately. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12. We'll read verses 10 and 11. This is just one example of this principle. Hebrews 12 Verse 10. Talking about earthly fathers, it says, For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but God for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening or correction or discipline is what that word means. Seems to be joyful for the present, but painful Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So that bullet point under the second point there is that God's goal for us is to become like his son, Christ. And this sometimes requires suffering like Jesus suffered. We'll look at those next scriptures shortly. But that passage we read in Hebrews 12, verses 10 and 11, is talking about the chastening of God. This is God's fatherly discipline. And it says that it's painful, but he does it for our profit to make us partakers of his holiness and to produce the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So God making you more like himself, more holy, more righteous in your behavior, in your words, in your conduct is why he corrects and disciplines us, which means that that is for our good, but it's not always going to feel good. Amen. So when we're professing that God is good, we're saying he will do what is ultimately good for us and all creation, but it's not always going to feel good. We have to keep that in mind in order for the rest of this to make sense. So go to Hebrews chapter five. We are going to start in verse seven. Verse nine is what we'll focus on, but we'll start in verse seven. It's talking about Christ. That says, who in the days of his flesh, 
when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to, to God, who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So Christ is the author of our eternal salvation. So he is the one that we follow. He's the origin of everything that we experience in being saved. But verse 8 says that he had to learn obedience by his suffering. This is the Son of God we're talking about. Jesus learned obedience. Now, he never sinned. He never failed. But he became obedient to the degree that he needed to be for his ministry through his sufferings. The first time you see that at least recorded is when he was in the wilderness for 40 days, fasting and being tempted by the devil. That was one part of it. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's sweating blood and it writes it here as a vehement cries and tears to God who was able to save him from death. That was suffering. And he had to make that prayer in order to yield himself to go to the cross. So he's, he's learned obedience there as well. And it says, by the things which he suffered. So on that bullet point, if God's goal for us is to become like his son, Jesus Christ, then that means that is going to require some suffering. If Jesus didn't escape that, I don't think we will either. Amen? And that is not going to feel good. Go to Romans 8. We'll start in verse 17. Romans 8. Start in verse 17. says, and if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So suffering with Christ is part of ultimately being glorified together with him. If you want to be like Jesus, part of that is learning to suffer like he suffered. Amen. Yeah, woohoo. <laughs> Verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. But his goal is for us to become like Jesus. So sometimes that discipline, that chastening, and sometimes that suffering is going to be a necessary part of what prepares us. If you actually look at 2 Corinthians 4, I didn't write that down, but I want to turn there. It's just coming to mind now. It's another really good one. 2 Corinthians 4, and you can maybe make note of this on the sheet of paper if you want. Jot it down, but 2 Corinthians 4 says in verse 17, well, actually start in verse 16. It says, therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Verse 17, for our light affliction, that's suffering, which is but for a moment compared to eternity, is only a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. 
So Romans 8.16 says suffering with Christ is part of what allows us to eventually be glorified together with him. And this says that our light affliction is working for us this far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That Greek word where it says working for us actually means to prepare us. So the afflictions we experience here, if you read it literally, are preparing us for eternity. That's what it means. So the afflictions and sufferings that we go through today are part of what prepares us for eternity. That's why they work for us or create for us, prepare for us this far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It's part of being like Jesus to learn to suffer like he did. All right, let's go to the third point here. Reiterating, some things that are good for us will be painful, and these things are sometimes necessary. So God's goodness includes, and here's some examples, discipline or correction. We go back to Hebrews 12. We'll read a couple more verses there. Hebrews 12, certain verse 5. Hebrews 12, verse 5 says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons or children of God. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? Amen. If we endure correction, discipline, chastening, God's dealing with us as his children, and he does it because he loves us. So that's God's goodness in effect. Discipline is God's goodness because it's good for you, right? Then let's, let's look at the next bullet point here, adversity and affliction. This is just general hardship that we experience in life. Go to Psalms 119. This is where it's going to get a little bit more messy. And we'll probably take some more explanation, and this is probably where more questions are going to come up. So <laughs> let's try to take this slow. Psalms 119, let's start in verse 67. We're going to read a few different verses out of this one psalm. Psalm 119, verse 67. The psalmist writes, Before I was afflicted, I went astray but now I keep your word. This is his way of saying, when things were easy, I started disobeying. I started rebelling. Then it got really hard, and it hurt really bad, and that brought me back to the truth. And now I'm obedient. That's what he's saying. He's sharing a personal testimony about how God uses adversities and afflictions to bring us to obedience. Then go to 71. He says, it is 
good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. So is that God's goodness? Yes, it is. 75, verse 75. This is where it gets a little iffy. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah, amen. So here's why the reason why I said it gets iffy is because we do live under a new covenant. So the kind of relationship we have with God is based on better promises, Hebrews says. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what does it mean in our current covenant relationship with God to be afflicted by him? What does that look like? Now, we've already read Hebrews 12, which talks about the Lord's chastening, right? His fatherly discipline. That, I can guarantee you, at times feels afflicting. So we have that going for us, but what else is included in this? And that's what Paul speaks of. So go to 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 7. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 7, Paul speaking, he says, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. Pause there. He's talking about how he had all these really powerful experiences with God and it had the potential to puff him up, right? So he's saying to stop me from getting puffed up. Here's what happened. Verse seven, second half, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. And then he identifies what that is. He says, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Lest I should be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, there's some debate as to what Paul means when he says a messenger of Satan being that thorn of the flesh. We don't have to get into that, but what we can know is that something came from the devil and God did not take it away from Paul because God was using it to keep him from being puffed up. Is that a fatherly act happening? Yes, absolutely. God is allowing one of his children to go through something hard to accomplish something that is ultimately good for him in the long run. Amen? Lisa, did you have a question or comment? Yes. Can you define the word affliction in the Greek? Yes. Please. So we can look at it in uh, Psalms. We were reading Psalms 119, so I'll pull that up real quick. So Psalm 119, I'll just pull up verse 67, which again says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept your word. It means... To depress, be brought low, abased, to be chastened, to deal hardly with, 
can also mean exercise or force, can also mean to hurt or be weakened. That's the Hebrew word. That's Hebrew, yep. Ana is that word. Yep. And then if you, well, why don't we actually look up the word for chastening in Hebrews 12? Because I think that's an important definition to have as well. Hebrews 12, chastening means tutorage, education, or training, disciplinary correction, chastisement, instruction, or nurturing. So this word has a gentle nurturing aspect to it, and it also has a fatherly discipline or chastisement as well. So it's, it's got both. Okay, then let's look at that third bullet point under point number three that says natural consequences or judgments, judgments of our sin. This means judgment that you bring upon yourself because of your stupid decisions. That's what this is. Believe it or not, that is also called the chastening of the Lord, which is interesting. So go to... Let's go to 1 Corinthians 11 first. I, I wrote 1 Corinthians 5 first on the sheet, but let's go to chapter 11 first. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 28, says, this is talking about communion, taking the Lord's Supper with the church. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself. So he's bringing judgment on himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. So you see weakness, sickness, and then it says many sleep, which means death. People are dying because they're bringing judgment on themselves for misusing how they eat and drink. In this context, verse 31, he says, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. That's his way of saying people would not create consequences for their own choices because people don't like that. They wouldn't do that. They would want everything to be easy, right? If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Verse 32, but when we are judged, we are, what does it say? Chastened by the Lord. So in other words, when you experience natural consequences or judgments for your decisions, that is also the chastening of the Lord. So there are certain consequences for sins that we escape, and we would maybe call that God's mercy, right? It's kind of like a person who's committed a lot of crimes, but they never got caught, so they didn't have to go to jail, but someone else did. We could call that God's mercy. But when a person does have to suffer the consequences, God is also involved in that. So whether you are delivered from a consequence or not, God is involved in both. Both serve a purpose. And when you experience judgments for your own sin, that's the chastening of the Lord. That's what that's trying to say. But you brought it on yourself. That's what he's trying to say. Amen? Fourth bullet point. Persecutions and trials. This is another one that a lot of people don't really like, but... <laughs> It's not very popular, but it's also important. So go to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 
Philippians chapter 1. Let's read verse 29. It says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. In context, in that part of Philippians, he's talking about having adversaries of your faith. So that's when people become your adversaries because of what you believe, and it creates conflict in your life, and as a result, you suffer from it. In verse 29, Paul says, that is granted to us. It's given. It's considered a gift. Let's look at 1 Peter, chapter 1. 1 Peter, chapter 1. In verse 6, talking about our salvation, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while... If need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we'll pause there. Notice that he says, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials which infers two things. Number one, sometimes it is needed to be grieved by various trials. One moment. If need be. So there's a whether it is needed aspect that's being implied there. Second thing is that being grieved by various trials tests your faith as though it's precious metal being put through fire. Right? So Peter's writing... As though you're to imagine yourself as, let's say, this ingot of iron or you know, raw gold or silver, whatever it might be. You put it through fire. It burns off the impurities. They flow to the surface. They're scraped off. Then you can pour whatever that metal is into some kind of mold. And then you have the purity of it left over. That is what trials do in your life. And that is painful. Dross, yes. Dross of the impurities. That is when I say the book of Ezekiel. I'm not familiar with that one either, but yeah. You guys can look that up on your own if you want to find a scripture with dross. Okay, let's. Did your, did your comment get answered to your question? Did you want to add anything? Yeah, I was just going to throw a cross reference in there. Sure, yeah, go for it. Book of James, chapter one, where it's like talking about the reasons of why we actually experience the trials. It's literally to persevere and endure and build our faith. Mm-hmm. Yep. Let's read that one quick. Great cross-reference. James 1, verse 2 says, you guys can add that to the list on the sheet of paper if you want. Verse 2 of James 1 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith, that's the same language that's used in 1 Peter 1, the being tested by fire. The testing of your faith produces what? Patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So God wants to bring you through patience to the place where you lack nothing, and that requires your faith being tested. 
So we can rest assured that if our faith is being tested by some kind of hardship, it is because it is needed for us to build patience and ultimately be perfected. That's the point. <laughs> All right. Go back to 1 Peter. Let's go to chapter 5. God doesn't let stuff happen to you randomly as though he wasn't aware of it. <laughs> it says if you're grieved by trials, there's, there's, for some reason, it's needed, big or small. So we can know that God knows what he's doing. First Peter chapter 5, in verse 10, he says, But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. So if you want to be perfected, established, strengthened, and settled, which to me sounds great, he says you have to suffer a little while first. <laughs> Whoopee. But it's necessary. Amen? Yeah. Go back to Hebrews 12. We'll look at a few more verses there. Hebrews 12. This is an interesting take on Hebrews 12 that maybe you guys haven't heard before. It's really important. Verse 3 of Hebrews 12. It says, consider him. This is talking about Jesus. Consider Jesus who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. I love that verse. One reason being that it's saying, when your life is hard... Remember that Jesus' life was way, way hotter, harder, <laughs> and hotter in the fire. <laughs> way harder, so don't complain. That's basically what it's saying. Yeah, your life is hard, but Jesus' life was way harder. You don't have a reason to complain. That's what that's trying to say. Verse 4, remember that you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. So he's saying, when you think it's hard to resist temptation, remember that Jesus resisted temptation to the point of bloodshed, which means he was saying no to sin to the point where he was having flesh torn from his body. So you're talking about torment, physical torment for resisting temptation, and that we complain because we get a rumbly tummy. <laughs> yes. That as well. Yeah, that's the emotional weight. She, she mentioned sweating blood when Jesus sweat blood. If that was part of the bloodshed that was happening, yes, that as well. That was the emotional weight that was upon Jesus. For In that case, he was resisting the temptation to forsake the cross because he didn't want to be crucified, but he knew he had to be obedient to do so. And so he resisted temptation unto bloodshed. So remember, you haven't done that yet. So don't be discouraged. Then you get to verse 5. He says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to, you, speaks to you as to sons. Then you get into the chastening of the Lord part. Do not despise the chastening of the Lord. So pause here. The context before he gets into this chastening of the Lord is hostility from sinners against himself, against Jesus, and striving to resist temptation to the point of bloodshed. 
So what this tells us is that persecutions or hostility from people against you for your faith and the torment of resisting temptation, both of those things lie inside the context of the chastening of the Lord. So when you experience the discomfort or suffering of either resisting temptation or being persecuted, God uses that to refine your faith and discipline you. Amen? It's a very powerful thing if you receive it well to be persecuted. Amen. Okay, so we've got those bullet points, things that are painful, but they are in God's goodness. Discipline, adversity, natural consequences of sin, and persecutions and trials. God's goodness are in those things as well. Go to that fourth point. Satan is the tempter or tester. 1 Thessalonians 3, 5 says that. We don't have to turn there, but that's just one reference where it refers to the devil as the tempter. This is another part where it gets iffy. But Satan cannot do anything that God does not allow. Now, this is a big question that people have. What can the devil do? What can't he do? But honestly, I don't, don't fully understand why people might have a problem with the devil being allowed to do things. Because God allows you to do dumb things all the time. <sighs> so, I don't see why the devil would be any different. <laughs> It's self-inflicted, right. Um, so, if you look at that bullet point, and then we'll look at the scriptures next. Just like God allows humans to make free will choices, God allows Satan and demons to make free will choices. Also, Jude 1.6 is one of them that says, God let angels leave their proper abode. And that's what led them to become fallen angels, and many of them demons. Satan was one of them. He chose to leave his proper abode. He chose to leave the place where God had put him in rebellion. And that's why he is what he is today. They get to make choices. So do you. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 10. First Corinthians 10 verse 13. I want to read this first but before we get into Job, because a lot of people complain about Job, ironically, <laughs> including Job. <laughs> Job complained about Job for like 40 chapters. <laughs> yeah, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 says, no temptation, that Greek word means trials, testing, has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful. Here's how he shows himself faithful. Who will not allow, there's that word, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So let's take this one, one portion at a time. The beginning of verse 13. Any trial you go through or that overtakes you, it's common to everyone. In other words, you're not going to have it harder than anybody else. In fact, there's always going to be somebody who has it harder than you. It's common to the human race. Then he says, 
God is faithful. Here's how he shows it. Not allowing you to be tempted beyond what you are able. So this means you being tested by trials or hardships requires God being involved in permitting or not permitting a certain severity of that hardship because he knows what you can handle, what you can bear and what you can't. And if he doesn't allow temptations to overtake you to the point where you can't bear it, then that means he did have to allow it to the extent that you could bear it. Right? Amen. This is New Testament, guys. Question? Bear it, oh, bear it means like to keep your salvation because like, I guess like in persecutions, you, can, you, you have the ability, like you could die. And that's like not bearing it, but like, is it talking about keeping your salvation is bearing it? Right. The, the Greek word for bear basically means to carry or endure would be the implication of it. And Jesus said, those who endure to the end will be saved. Well, of course, that would mean your faith so that your faith would endure to the end because that's the ultimate good, right? So if you go through a trial and your faith is strengthened through it, God let it happen ultimately to strengthen your faith, right? So that's that's a great question, Jacob, yeah. Then you may be able to bear it. So then you have, yeah, sometimes it'll be hard emotionally, yeah. With the temptation will also make the way of escape. So that way of escape actually means, I believe it means the end of a thing, but I'm just going to look that up just to verify that. That Greek word, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, will also make the way of escape. Yeah, that means the exit or the end. Every trial has an end. That's the point. Every trial has an end. And he's saying he wants to show what that end is so that you're able to bear it. In other words, if you've ever run like a long, really long race, once you get to that home stretch where you can see the finish line, you can see the ribbon, you get that boost of energy because you know you're so close and you want to run harder so you can get to the finish line faster. That's what it's talking about. He creates this exit that you see and go, okay, every trial has an end. I know I'm close. And that gives you the energy to press on. That's the point. So you want to know that every trial has an end or has an exit. If we go through stuff in life and we think it's going to last forever, that's when you start to get discouraged because you don't see the end. But when you go through a trial, God wants to remind us that there is an end to it and there is a purpose and that will encourage us to press on. Amen. So that's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. The main point was about God does allow or disallow to any certain extent. Then Matthew 4, verse 1. Let's go there. Matthew 4, verse 1. This is Jesus. Remember, we read in Hebrews 5 that Jesus learned obedience by what he suffered. Here's one of the ways that God did it for him. Matthew 4, verse 1. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
Now, if I hadn't read this verse and I told you, God led me into a time of life where the devil was tempting me a lot. We would think that that sounds weird, right? But it says Jesus was led by the Spirit, which of course is God, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. But know, as we read in 1 Corinthians 10, that only what you're able to bear, he says he'll allow you to be tempted in. So that means there are times in life where God will lead you into things, have you attempt things, tasks, times, relationships, whatever it might be. And God knows you're going to be tempted in those times. But he also knows if he's leading you there and he knows the devil's going to tempt you, you are able to bear it and you will be strengthened through it. If you cling to the word. That's the point. So Jesus was led by God to a time where he'd be tempted. And if Jesus had to go through that, we can expect that we will too. Amen? Okay. So those are a couple examples. Now let's go to Job because... I wanted to read those New Testament examples first, first, because you have to uh, read through that lens when you're looking at Job. Job chapter 1. Not a question, but uh, sure. just a cross-reference again for uh, what the one you just said, Galatians mm-hmm. 5.16. Where it says, uh, walk by the Spirit, surely you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Yeah, yep. Walk in the Spirit, you'll be able to resist temptation. Yeah, it's a good one. Okay, Job chapter 1, let's start in verse 9. So God just got done really talking Job up to the devil. Verse 8. God compliments Job to the devil. Imagine that. God complimenting you to Satan. (laughs) That'd be pretty cool. I wonder if Job knew that. But verse 9 says, So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. This is basically the devil's way of saying, Job only likes you because you do so much good for him. You've made his life easy. Make his life hard. And then, I guarantee, he's not going to serve you or be faithful to you anymore. That's, it's an accusation the devil is making. Right? Well, for, you know, I've read Job, and from what I've read, Job never knew anything about conversation. Oh, oh, oh. Well, from what I've read in Job... Job never knew anything about the conversations God had with Satan, and he had no, and he did not know that that God was allowing Satan to inflict him. I don't think he did either. Yeah. Right. So right. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Doesn't say anything about right. it or not. So. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's keep reading. So, other other others have said about verse ten that maybe the devil was lying, but if you read the end of Job, it does say. God did bless Job in the beginning and then blessed him double in the end. So Satan was telling the truth here. God did bless Job and the work of his hands. Verse 11. 
So Satan says, but now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. There's God saying, hey, you can go to this degree, but I'm stopping it here. Because God knows what Job can bear and, then, and knows what he can't. Right? Now, if you read later in Job... Job's faith endures through the trials that the devil brings upon him. He loses his children, he loses his houses, his herds, his flocks, his wealth, everything is taken away from him. But he still has his physical health. Then the Lord and Satan talk again and God says, see, look, Job serves me truly because he loves me, not because just I've been good to him, right? Then Satan says, but just let me take away his health. And God says, okay, you can do that. Just spare his life. Don't kill him. So God places another limitation. Now notice that God let the devil do something later that he didn't let him do earlier. The reason why was because Job made it through the first set of trials that strengthened him to go through the second part. Right? But Satan couldn't kill him. So this is an example of God or its scripture is showing an example of how God uses trials that come from the tempter. They come from the devil, but limitations are placed. And what Job goes through, James, uh, James five says is actually an example that all of us are to look to. So I didn't write down this reference, but I do think we should read it. So go to James, James chapter 5. While you're looking for that, got that first round of volleys from the devil with Satan probably prepared him. I think you kind of asserted that. Uh, so when his friend said, curse God and die, you know, just get it over. He wouldn't do it. And he survived it. Mm-hmm. Yep, he wouldn't do it. James chapter 5. Let's read verse 10. James 5, verse 10, I love this passage. It says, My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Now, it's interesting because when you, most people read Job, they don't take away from that story that God is compassionate and merciful. <laughs> In fact, they usually think quite the opposite. But notice that it says that the conclusion of the book of Job is that God is compassionate and merciful. Right? That's the point. He says, keep in mind the end that was intended by the Lord. You read the end of the book of Job, that's what it's talking about. What happened to Job in the end. He was blessed twofold. Yep. He was given double what he had before. And he says to consider the perseverance of Job. Job is an extreme example, but it's given to believers as a story of a real person who went through some of the hardest things a person will ever go through, and he made it through without losing faith and rather being strengthened by it. And if Job could do that, you can too. And if God knew that Job could go through that and not fail, God knows that whatever you have to go through doesn't have to cause you to fail either. Only reason God let Job go through that was because he knew he was able to bear it. 
That's why 1 Corinthians 10 says, he won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. So we don't, you don't have to read Job and go, oh man, is that going to happen to me? That's not the point. The point is, Job could bear that. And therefore, he went through it, made it out, strengthened. Anything God lets you go through, he lets you go through to strengthen you. And you can trust that he's faithful and that it is for your good in the end, whatever happens to you. Now we're going to get to a clarifying point later that will clear up, I know, some questions that are coming up. Um, did you have a question? Yeah. yeah, maybe you'll clarify it later, but the, some people might say, like, if someone fails in a trial or something that they're being tested in, were they not able to bear it? Like, if they fail, were they not able to bear it? Being uh, able to bear it doesn't mean you will. Uh, right, but he knows you're able. Now, when we say fail, that could mean sinning. An extreme case would be losing your salvation, which is more, a lot more rare. But most of the time, the average person is simply going to sin and, or, or give up. Sure. Oh, thank you. But I would say it's probably m most reasonable to just refer to a person sinning. That would be the failure in the temptation. And that God knows that you're able, but that doesn't mean you will. But if it happens, you're able, that's part of the encouragement. Know that you can do it. Does that make sense? Do you have another question? Okay, you can ask it. Okay, something like in extreme cases, um, like someone is going through something. Maybe they're not even like, is, it, is this only applicable to believers? Is this the majority of the... First Corinthians 10 verse applicable to believers. Is He's writing right? to believers, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, yeah. So, that temptation or trial is not for God to know what we'll do. It's for, would you say it's for us to know what we'll do? Absolutely, because God knows what you're going to do before you do it. But it's really good for your faith. That's what James 1 says. It is to strengthen your faith through patience. So when you go through something and you make it out on the other side strengthened, that's really encouraging because you, man, like, it worked. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> right? And that, that's very encouraging. So, yeah, it's for us. God knows what you're going to do, but sometimes we don't, and that's part of the point. Okay. So let's go to this fifth, fifth point here on that sheet of paper. We're trying to move a little faster here. We won't read all these scriptures. Everything that happens is within God's will. Now, what we mean by God's will is what he has to allow to happen, but not what he desires to happen. Not everything that happens is God's desire or intent but some things he has to allow to happen. Ephesians 1.11, I'll quote it to you guys, simply says that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. So everything works according to what God's will either decrees or allows. Everything. That's what Ephesians 1.11 says. So nothing is out of God's control. Matthew 10.29 is what, in, uh, what is inferred there. 
I'll just read these fast. God's will has to happen because of the enemy. In other words, because of the enemy's influence in the earth, causing people to be in sin, God has to allow certain evils in order to bring about an ultimate good or justice. Examples. Consequences are disciplines of sin. If we, if we didn't sin, we wouldn't have to be disciplined. But God has to discipline us because we sin. So that is a hardship that has to happen to bring about an ultimate good. The enslavement of the Israelites in Egypt. Ooh, that's supposed to be Genesis 15, verse 16. I, don't, I have no idea why it got written out that way. Typo. So you can correct that with a pen. It's supposed to be Genesis chapter 15, verse 16. God had allowed that to happen for a reason you can read in that verse. Joseph being sold into slavery was to save many from famine. Genesis 50, verses 19 and 20 talks about that. The hardening of certain people's hearts for destruction. Romans 9 and 2 Thessalonians 2 talk about that. Examples where God has to allow something because of the enemy's influence has to allow certain evils in order to bring about an ultimate good. All right, turn the page over. Some of the world's hardships God does decree or send. Psalms 105 verse 16 says that the famine in the, in the land during the days of Joseph was sent by God. It was not a demonic famine. God sent that famine. That's what that verse says. Now, this is before the law of Moses. So there was no punishment for the Israelites' sin. It was not a specific covenant act. This was God sent this famine, and God sent Joseph to bring about his solution inside the famine. Let's look at, uh, there's a long list of scriptures there. I'll let you guys read those on your own, but we are going to look at Romans 8, verses 20 and 21. Go to Romans 8. Verses 20 and 21. Verse 20 says, For the creation, that's the, the earth itself, was subjected to futility, not willingly. In other words, he didn't do it because he desired to, but because he had to. Because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So the creation, the earth was subjected by God to futility. Earthquakes, tsunamis, hurricanes, volcanic eruptions. All of those things are what Romans 8 later calls the birth pains of the earth. So the effects of sin in the earth. And it says God is the one who yielded the earth to that futility. He didn't do it because he wanted to, but because he had to. I won't get into all the theological reasons why right now, but that is an example where creation itself was yielded by God. This isn't some big demonic thing. God had to let that happen. And that's what Romans 8 is partly trying to say. Then under the bullet point, you have Satan can cause certain disasters directly. Job chapter 1 and all those verses lists a human attack, a fire that burns down a barn basically, and then wind that throws down a house. So you have the devil going out and causing an army to attack, causing fire, and then causing wind. So you can look at those if you'd like to, but some things are caused directly by Satan. Some things God specifically sends and other things happen simply because of a fallen world and they're allowed by God. Point number seven, 
Everyone will experience good and evil in their lives and both serve a purpose. Good and evil meaning things that are easy and things that are hard. Both serve a purpose. Go to Ecclesiastes. We're just going to look at that one in chapter 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. You guys can read 7.14 and 8.14 on your own, but we're going to read chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes. Start in verse 1. It says, For I considered all this in my heart so that I could declare it all, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God, meaning God's in charge, God's in control. You don't have to worry. People know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. All things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean, and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath as he who fears an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. We'll pause there. In other words, that first part where it says people know neither love nor hatred by anything that they see before them. You have no way of knowing whether you are under God's love or his wrath based on what you see happening to you. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, circumstances have absolutely no bearing on showing to you whether you're under God's love or wrath. Because God sends rain on the just and the unjust. He's good to the evil and the righteous, Jesus said. And there are hardships that happen to good people and to bad people. Now, you're definitely going to have an advantage as a believer, rest assured. But the main point Solomon is making here in Ecclesiastes is that bad things happen to everyone, just like good things happen to everyone. And that is not what God uses to show us whether he loves us or not, because he always loves us. Romans 5.8 says God demonstrates his love by sending his son, period. So that is supposed to be enough to believe that God loves you by what he did through his son. Amen? So there's got to be a solution here, though. So you look at that bullet point. Still, the righteous and wise will generally have an easier and more joyful life than the wicked. Proverbs 13.21 is one of many verses that talk about this. But no one is exempt from adversity. It is better to serve and love God. The Bible does say you will generally have an easier and more joyful life than a person who is in sin. But no one is exempt from adversity. Amen. Verse eight, or excuse me, point eight. Most suffering comes from a person's own sin. That's why you have an easier life generally if you're a believer, because most of the hard things you go through come from your dumb choices. Right? Most of the hardship people go through, they go through because they make dumb choices. If you make good choices, life will be easier, generally speaking. There are really only two things, or there's really only one thing that we are truly a victim of, and that is the dumb choices that we make. So you don't have to be a victim to that if you obey God. Amen. You can look at those Proverbs. There's a lot of them. I'm just going to quote the Galatians one that says, He who sows to the flesh will reap corruption, 
but he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. In other words, if you sow into sin, you're going to get back hard things, bad things. If you invest or sow into God's ways, which is being obedient to the word, you'll get back things that are good and life-giving. That's the point. There's another proverb that says, he who sows sin will reap sorrow. Amen. Bullet points. If we stay repentant and obedient, we can have this confidence. God will use everything for our good, and we will escape most of the world's hardships. There is a condition, though. That's what Romans 8.28 talks about. Everything works together for good for those who, that is, actively love him. That's being obedient to his commands. If we stay repentant and obedient, we can have this confidence that God will use everything for our good and we will escape most of the world's hardships. We're going to read Psalm 112 last, so I'll get to that in a moment. But the main concluding points, if you take one thing away from this, God is always good, even when he allows adversity, and you will be safe from most hardships if you stay obedient to God. That's the point. Now go to Psalms 112. It's a short psalm. I'm just going to read the whole thing. This is what we'll end with here. It says, praise the Lord, blessed. That Hebrew word means happy is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on the earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches will be in his house and his righteousness endures forever. Unto the upright there arises light in darkness. In other words, when you're going through dark times, you'll have light if you're upright. That's the point. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. A good man deals graciously and lends. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Surely he will never be shaken. The righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. He will not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He will not be afraid until he sees his desire upon his enemies. He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted with honor. The wicked will see it and be grieved. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. And the desire of the wicked shall perish. In other words, if you're thinking about eternity, it's going to be way, 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 way better for you if you're a believer than if you're an unbeliever. <laughs> That's the point. And not only in regards to heaven and hell, but in this life as well. If you walk in righteousness, you won't be afraid of evil tidings. You'll be steadfast, established. You'll see desire, your desire upon enemies. The wicked will melt away, but you'll be blessed. And so will your children and your children's children. If you walk in righteousness.